Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Jackie Bruce. Dr. Jackie Bruce, it is good to see you. We haven't seen each other for, gosh, it's three or four, maybe more years. And for all of you listeners, uh, Dr. Jackie Bruce is an associate professor. I can't believe you aren't professor. I'm looking forward to that day. But she's an associate professor at NC State. She is in the Department of Agriculture and Human Sciences. Is that correct, Jackie Bruce? That is correct. That is it. Awesome. Well, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Jackie is a mom. She is a professor. She is the editor of the Journal of Leadership Education. And Jackie, that must be going on seven, eight years now that you've served in that role. So it's funnily enough that you say that because in three days, it will be eight years. So three days from today is, is eight years exactly. So that has been a fun conversation with folks as lots of I've, we've been having lots of conversations about the journal um, in the last few days and what's happening with the journal. So it's been it's given me time to pause and actually do the math about how long it's been. So, yeah, in three days, it'll be eight years. That's a lot of journal articles read and reviewed. And <laughs> but yes. we'll, and we'll get there. We'll get there because I want to hear your reflections on serving in that role, what you're seeing in the literature, what some opportunities in the literature are. But where I want to start, I don't think probably everyone knows about this whole stream of leadership education that comes out of colleges of agriculture. And at many of the land-grant institutions, I know that you did your undergrad and your grad at Colorado State, and then you were at Texas A&M for your PhD, correct? That is correct. So I am a yes. product of the land-grant system. So, so tell listeners about leadership education out of colleges of agriculture. Yeah. So part of what makes the land-grant system, I think, so special is its commitment to taking the research that's happening at the university and putting it in the hands of the people um, to make lives better. It is the commitment to educate the citizens of the state 
which I think is, again, really close to my heart and, and is congruent with my own personal values. But the way that leadership happens, like why leadership in colleges of agriculture? It's a very popular question, Scott. So um, I'm glad we started here. It really began with cooperative extension agents. And when we think about extension agents, lots of people think back to Green Acres, right? And the county ag agent coming to the farm. What they don't realize is there were other agents doing other things, community development work. And part of that community development work was leadership education and leadership development. And so really the roots of leadership development in colleges of agriculture comes from that cooperative extension tradition, that community development tradition. That's where I got connected to it was uh, when I started my doctoral program at Texas A&M was connecting with the folks in the colleges of agriculture that were doing leadership development. Well, and so so you, because I think for youth, a lot can start in, in Future Farmers of America, FFA, or in 4-H. So were you involved in either of those as a child? Yes, I grew up in the 4-H program. My mom was adamant that her tiny, awkward, eight-year-old child do something um, to make them less awkward. And so... Jackie, uh, you are not awkward. Uh, oh, <laughs> Oh, Scott Allen. Um, there, there are decades of, of photos and anecdotes to, to bear out that. So I started in 4-H and I spent as many years as they could until they kicked me out. And then I became a 4-H leader for a while. And I think the thing that is so salient about those youth leadership opportunities is how long they stick with you. I can close my eyes, as hokey as it sounds, I can close my eyes and remember what it was like the day that my 4-H leader, I was eight, asked me to stand up in front of the entire 4-H club and lead the 4-H pledge. And I would have just as soon jump off a bridge than do that. (laughs) And I remember my mother looking at me and being like, get up, get up and do the thing. (laughs) Um, Literally like pushing her tiny, awkward eight-year-old daughter off the, off the bench at the school that we were meeting at and, and standing up and doing that and having that moment. And again, as hokey as it sounds, having that moment where I was like, wow, I really can do this and being surrounded by adults that really cared about my development as a person and as a leader and being challenged to do things that were scary for my highly introverted self to do. And so I I do think that continues to be in terms of of that land grant mission and leadership development, a significant part of that is that outreach um, with 4-H, which is part of the land grant system. And then its counterpart, FFA, um, which is part of the K through 12 system. Well, that's wonderful. And so you you then, when did you decide that leadership was the area you wanted to focus on? What was that? What were those series of decisions or who 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 did you cross paths with that kind of nudged you in that direction? Because we all have mentors along the way. Yeah. So I think it was a couple of different spaces. So if you look at my CV, you see that I am a poli-sci major. My bachelor's degree is in political science. 
And so lots of people always say, like, how did you get from political science to ag? Which I sort of joke now, and it's not really all that funny, that I use political science as much as I use my two degrees in agriculture and education to help teach this thing we call leadership. Part of it was just a rapt, passionate love for political science and for our democracy and the study of our democracy and the study of our leaders in that democracy. Um, whether we're talking about Plato and Socrates or Jean-Jacques Rousseau in my political theory classes or listening to the speeches of President Kennedy, Martin Luther King. So I think that sort of deep, abiding, passionate love for democracy was was the start, but I didn't know what the words were. I didn't I didn't know that you could study leadership. And then yeah. I went out and I had um, I had my life for a little while, my my real world job. And then I went back because I knew that I wanted to be in the academy. Um, I was inspired by amazing teachers and amazing professors. And so I knew that's where I wanted to be. And I got to Texas A&M surrounded by lovely, wonderful God knows patient people who allowed me to kind of explore. And then I took my first leadership class and really I wasn't even taking it. I was TAing it. And I remember sitting in this class as a TA because, you know, when you're a good TA, you attend class every day regularly. You set the standard for the students. Well, and Jackie, at Texas A&M, there's some big, there's a number of majors in these degrees, correct? Yeah. So there was, uh, I think, more than a thousand undergrads. Yeah. So I was sitting in this class of like 250 students as the TA, one of the TAs. And the professor was lecturing about situational leadership. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. This is what I want to do. Like I was turning around, I was watching the students and I was watching their faces. Just sort of that, that aha moment, right? Yeah. And like watching a tennis match, like I'm watching the professor, I'm watching the students, I'm watching the professor, I'm watching the students. And I'm like, this is it. Like, this is it. This is what I want to do for the whole of the rest of my life. And I was surrounded by people who said yes to me, who said, yes, you can do this. Yes, you wow. should do this. Yes, this is this is the way that you should go. So put charted my path in that way. I love that you can kind of define the moment. I had a similar experience. So my first boss, really, it was my first significant supervisor out of undergrad. He led us through a book club and we read the leadership challenge, Kuzas and Posner. That was the first time I realized or understood that leadership was a topic that you could explore. That, And I'd had these leadership roles as an undergraduate and, and failed miserably in many instances and was reflecting consistently just, oh my gosh, this is a whole area of study. This is something we could explore. And I failed so badly at this, this, and this when I was just leading two years ago in this organization. And I, I too can kind of I can reflect upon kind of that moment where it hit me that, oh, wow, there's a lot of energy here. I got to pay attention to that because I'm kind of really 
consumed by this topic. And from then on, it just became a theme. It became a constant theme. And so then you have been president of the Association of Leadership Educators. Of course, you're serving as the editor of uh, the Journal of Leadership Education. We're coming up on your eight-year anniversary. You have a really, really unique perspective, a bird's-eye view on, on the field right now. What I would love to explore a little bit is what are some of the what are some themes you're seeing and then what are some opportunities that you think are potentially being missed maybe we have some listeners who who are starting their careers in academia maybe we have some listeners who uh, want to pursue a career in writing what are some of those opportunities that you see in the field right now that may be lacking or missing Oh, this is a big responsibility, Scott, and I'm so <laughs> glad that I listened to other podcasts to know that this was coming. I have been uniquely fortunate in being able to serve on the board for the Association of Leadership Educators and now in the role of journal editor in that I do get to see both sides sort of of the coin, even though I don't really see it that way. I, you know, so many people think you're either practicing, you're a practitioner or you're a researcher. I don't think that's true. I think it's less and less true every day, as a matter of fact. What excites me the most about what I see lately, what I think is coming in the future, and what I also think is an opportunity, is that we are wrestling finally with this question, leadership for what? and for me, I think that is a unique opportunity for us as educators, as scholars, as practitioners, for all of us that wear all of those hats in lots of different ways to have that conversation, to trouble that discourse, if you will, and really start to dig into the answer to that question. I'm seeing, and it's exciting, so much work coming in the DEI space related to leadership education. And that is such important work. We need more of it. We need more people doing that work. That is the work of every person. All of us need to be in that space. And so it's exciting that that's happening. I think one of the unique things that I'm seeing. From the editor's perspective is that those conversations are also creeping into assessment conversations. Oh, so assessment has always been robust. You know that, Scott. Um, we've always been talking about assessment. How do we make sure that, we, that we're doing what we say we're doing in our programs and in our classrooms? And I think one of the things that I'm seeing that's exciting is that the DEI space is creeping into those assessment spaces. So we're talking about different ways of knowing, doing, and being. We're talking about decolonizing spaces, which is exciting. So I see that as a huge opportunity, um, certainly a, a huge trend that I'm seeing right now. And that's just really exciting to me. I imagine when you sat in that course, we were at Texas A&M where you were a TA. I'm imagining this is the 90s. Uh, yeah. Correct? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. So yeah, you're hearing the kind of traditional theorists, whether that's 
Bass, whether that's Burns, whether that's Blanchard, whether that's Fiedler, the founders of the field in many ways. The problem with the founders, quote unquote, of the field in many ways is that they were all of one perspective. And and that's limiting in my statement. I don't mean to to grossly generalize, but they were all white males providing their perspective on what leadership is. And how we create this larger tent for more voices from very different places about what leadership is, I think only strengthens our understanding holistically of this topic. Because quite honestly, it's happening in Gaines in Chicago. It's happening in the Middle East and Yemen. It's happening, people are influencing others towards a common vision all over the world for good, bad, or ill. And it's happening. And having diverse perspectives, trying to understand and make sense of that, I don't see a downside to it. I don't see a downside. I mean, it, it, it makes things much more complicated and complex because the topic's complex. But so what you're saying, it resonates with me for sure. And I think the other thing that's really exciting to me is the conversations happening around how we know what we know. Hmm. And what we have this conversation in a graduate course that I teach. How do you know what you know? How do you know you know it? <laughs> Jackie, and it's my, like 8.30 in the morning. I haven't had my and, coffee yet. And you're asking right? me these big questions. <laughs> so my graduate students say at 6 o'clock, too. They're like, come on, yeah. Dr. Bruce, it's the end of the day. <laughs> it's always time for a good meta question. <laughs> But like, how do we know what we know? And I think one of the most exciting things that I'm seeing is an embrace of and a validation of that. Not that we needed to validate it because it's always been valid, but an acknowledgement of there are different ways of knowing. And so hearing from indigenous leaders, hearing from leaders from cultures that are not highly capitalistic cultures is so incredibly important as we, like you said, add these perspectives to a complex, nuanced conversation about how we influence people towards that common goal. And I think that's really exciting. I mean, it's incredibly exciting. Yep. Yep. You're exactly right. Well, and what else? What else are you seeing as themes or Jackie as opportunities? I think the other thing that I'm seeing is a lot of questions around how do we do what we do? Hmm. Jackie, now, now you know, <laughs> how do we know what we know and how do we do what we do? That's what I'm going to call this podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> I love that question though. Okay, say more. Again, I remember being that 4-H member, right? And doing all of the leadership activities, the games and the projects and having the very short debrief period because, you know, you can't debrief deeply with eight-year-olds. And then moving into a doctoral program and talking about pedagogy and talking about how we teach this and balancing that with all that we know about experience and what experience teaches us and how do we bring in people's lived experiences. And so what I'm seeing now, and again, I'm seeing a little bit of it. I hope we see more of it, 
is work that answers that question. How do we do what we do? What is, what are the best ways that as the conversations become more complex, that as the world becomes closer, that as the problems become more nuanced, the old stuff maybe doesn't fit anymore. And we have to take off the comfortable sweater, the comfortable cardigan, shout out to Taylor Swift and the comfortable cardigan, and do something different, try something different. And those educators that are out there doing things differently, I had a conversation with someone in the before times when you could be together with people. Um, I had a conversation with an educator who was talking about being able to match biometrics with learning. So they were actually taking biometric data in on their learners as these folks were going through their program and they were trying to match moments in time. And I was like, that is amazing. Like, let me hear more about that to try to harness like some, some data from that. I know there's folks doing work, right, with eye contact and the impact of eye contact and the cultural implications of that. And not just the physical things, right, the biometric data and, and those kinds of things, but I think anything that helps us answer the question, how do we do what we do? And how do we do it better? And how are we meeting the needs of this increasingly more diverse and complex audience that should know and should hear this message of anyone can be a leader. And I think that's what continues to resonate with me, Scott, is that as we continue to ask those questions, we continue to reinforce the message that I still get really excited about when I teach the intro class, right? And we talk about the evolution of how we think about leadership. The moment when we acknowledge that anybody can be a leader is a huge, it's why we have jobs, right? It's why leadership educators have jobs, which is not only the, the exciting part, but it is the acknowledgement that anybody can do this. Everybody should do this. So how do we make sure that everybody is getting the kind of message that resonates with them and inspires them and moves them? I think that's, that's the other exciting piece. As you were speaking, I was thinking of a couple different things. So I'm re-recording a podcast with uh, David Snowden and Mary Boone, and they wrote an article that was in Harvard Business Review in 2007. And Jackie, it's one of those articles that I just go back to a couple times a year. And they've been gracious enough because we had some technology challenges to, to re-record. But they look at, the article was called A Leader's Framework for Decision-Making. And they, they very nicely kind of delineate different types of problems that leaders address. So you have simple, you have complicated, you have complex, and then you have chaotic. That whole, their, their work has made me start to think about, okay, well, what are the levels of, of, of leader, leadership development? Because we need to prepare individuals to know when they're navigating something that's complicated and kind of how to conceptualize what's their mental representation or their framework for at least beginning to approach that versus a chaotic challenge or a complex challenge, because they're totally different. You know, Heifetz would call them technical problems and adaptive challenges. I mean, that's, that's his language for that same thing. But how all of that is scaffolded so that we can help learners increase their complexity and how they think about some of what they're facing 
I think it's invaluable. And then, so, so I, I think of that, I think of what are the levels and are we truly preparing people to navigate some of those different levels to where they need to lock in to kind of address and help the work of the group move forward. And then David Day on this podcast, it was really interesting. We, I was speaking with him about leadership development and he had this quote, he said, you want to invest in your development because everybody needs to be a leader even when they are not the leader. <laughs> so do we, you know, you may not have the position of authority, quote unquote, but to your point, everyone can serve as a leader, even if it's in brief moments where I stand up and influence the direction of the group. And back to your other point of the why, hopefully that's influencing us towards a moral, a ethically grounded, a kind of holistic needs of the many, you know, uh, perspective or direction than one that is just concerned with my own needs and my own bottom line, so to speak. Uh, yeah, what, what a just, for the whole? equitable, liberated community. Yes. That's the point. I hope that's the point. Say more about that because that's beautifully spoken. That you just said the why in part or uh, oh why? Right? Yeah. So here's here's my soapbox that I try not to get on very much, but I do. I will I will get on the soapbox for just a hot second. For me, when I think about why we do this, why do I go into the classroom every day to educate young people on leadership? Why do we talk about why it's important? And for me, the why is so that we are creating more equitable, more just, more liberated community. That's the point. Hmm. That we meet the challenge, not just to improve the bottom line, as you said, but so that every single person can be the people they were meant to be. Yeah. That's the point. If what we do as leaders, and it doesn't matter if you are the president of your sorority or fraternity or the president of a Fortune 500 company, you should be acknowledging that your work as a leader is meant to create a more equitable system, wherever that system is, acknowledging that people are coming to us in this community that we are in, in very different ways. And it is our job as leaders to create a path forward that is equitable, that is just, and allows them to thrive. That's the point. Mm. That's mm. the point. Yeah. It's the point for me anyway. From a Maslow's hierarchy standpoint, how do we help people self-actualize? How do we help people begin with a foundation where the base level needs are met? That's another levels of this kind of conversation too. How, how do we help people have the basics and then provide that love and belongingness so that they can tap into like that moment you spoke of in talking about situational leadership and the moment I spoke of talking about Kuzas and Posner where... And for other people, it's something else. But tap into that energy that I think each one of us has. Each one of us has that energy. That's, it's Absolutely. in us. 
And, you know, as a parent, I think about, I think about, can I help my children, my wife and I, can we help our children tap into whatever it is they're meant to be here? And we're going to explore, we're going to experiment, we're going to kind of look in a lot of different nooks and crannies to see what that is for you. If, if we can help them with that process, I think a good percentage of the work is done. <laughs> but there's literally, it? whether it's whether it's urban America or rural America or anywhere else in the world, there are large numbers of people who are tapping into that energy. I think they're far from they're far from that that place. Does that make sense that that maybe yeah, some of those absolutely. base level needs? So I love what you're saying because if at least at least we are working towards getting human beings to uh, at least a level setting to a certain place where to your, say that say those three again. It's a more equitable, a more just and a liberated community. Okay. Okay. And I think you know, my K-12 educator friends use the phrase, you got a Maslow before you can bloom, right? The idea <laughs> that, we, that we have to meet those basic needs, right? Kids have to feel, they, they have to be fed and sheltered and clothed. They have to feel like they belong, right? They have to feel secure. And then we can start teaching them reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, yeah. It, it, is, it is no different for anybody in a leadership role to acknowledge that that is also their job. It is your job as a leader to look out on the people that you are trying to influence and recognize what they need. Recognize yeah. that that not everybody is coming to the table from the same place. And so, Scott, I have to tell you, it it's the one thing I think that energizes me and keeps me up at night that we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough in those areas. We're not having enough of those conversations. We got to have more. We just have to have more. We have to keep talking about it. And we have to confront ourselves. I think so many times we are, we educators are reticent to acknowledge that we haven't done the best job in this. We haven't been cognizant of this because you can't know, back to what I said before, you can't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. But know better, do better, as the great Maya yep. Angelou said, right? And we know these things now. We have to do better. I think it's a very, I think it's a very interesting space in time that we're in. It's a transitionary time. It's an important time. Jackie, I have loved this conversation. I'm I'm going to wind us down right here because I want people to to leave this conversation reflecting on what we've just co had a conversation about because I think it's critical. I really do. And I just wrote a paper with a couple co-authors, Dave Rush and Ron Reggio, and we were it, within the context of this paper, we kind of look to, and, and you've seen this work done a thousand times, you know, at 23 of the top 25 business schools tout leadership as their, as their mission, vision, or purpose. And yet we don't have research from really anywhere kind of touting the incredible leaders we've created. If we did, we'd, the, the research would be out there and we would have published it and we would have the conclusive evidence that yes, we in fact did that. I think we can improve and we have to look within and look at the current system and what it's yielding and you know, what do we need to shift and adjust and alter to get somewhere new? 
And that's not only in how we teach, but that's the why question. That's so much, I think, of what we just discussed is in that, in, baked into that whole conversation, the assessment, all of it, right? Absolutely. And again, I go back to my question earlier, leadership for what? Yep. What's the point? Why do we do this? And we have yep. to be able to answer that question. Yep. Okay, Jackie, I am excited for this part. What have you been listening to, streaming, watching, reading? Could have to do with leadership, doesn't have to do with leadership. What would you like to draw our listeners' attention to? So my work, much of the last few years, my work has been in the intersection of leadership in the DEI space. So I read a lot in that DEI space. I am continually inspired by the work of uh, Dr. Kendi, How to Be an Anti Racist. My 12 year old and I uh, listened to the audiobook over the summer together. We continue to have conversations about that. Anything by Kendi is fantastic, and I go back to it regularly. I am inspired by the work of Angela Davis, um, particularly Women, Race, and Class, uh, which hmm. continues to be evergreen in the best and worst of ways. So those two things, I often send those out to my graduate students as well um, and tell them, you need to read this before we can start talking about leadership education. In terms of leadership literature, um, I give a shout out to our colleague, John Dugan. I am using his book in my graduate level class. And I have students so many times tell me, particularly those students who go through the undergraduate leadership program and then come into that class where we deconstruct and reconstruct all of those foundational theories. And, and they tell me that I wreck them in the, in the best ways um, <laughs> by having them read Dugan. So I think that is a must read. And then from a purely personal, it doesn't have anything to do with the academy. I'm listening to a podcast called Coffee Break Italian because I am I'm half Italian. My, my grandparents and my mom spoke Italian in the home, but now those folks are gone and I feel the need to reconnect with that. So I'm trying to learn Italian as best I can. So I'm listening to Coffee Break Italian, which is charming and fascinating. Like I said, I'm a political junkie, so anything from crooked media makes me laugh and gives me hope, particularly <laughs> the Pod Save America guys. So those are that's what's happening. That's what's awesome. uh, in my ears, I guess. Dr. Jackie Bruce, that. thank you so much. You are what a wonderful conversation. Great way to start my day. Absolutely. Thank you for this opportunity, Scott. It's always good to see you. It's always good to connect. So I appreciate this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Be well. Thanks. You too. For those listeners who were paying close attention, you could probably hear my wheels turning. Jackie just beautifully in this conversation, at least for me, captured uh, some of the why of what I do. Uh, it's an emerging why, and she obviously is incredibly clear in her why. But that whole notion of a more equitable, more just, and a liberated community, I think it's a beautiful purpose. And again, I loved her phrasing from some of her educator friends, you have to Maslow before you can bloom. And how do we create spaces where 
uh, those base level needs are met? And how do we use leadership and influence to ensure that so that millions of people can thrive? I think it's a wonderful question. Jackie, thank you so much for the conversation. I really, truly appreciate the work that you do for the Journal of Leadership Education and the work that you do in the classroom. Take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope it's left you with some things to ponder, maybe even your why. Be well. Take care. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.